Thank you, Russ. And uh, thank you to you guys. It's wonderful to be here. It was wonderful to be able to worship with you and to feel your heart and just to love Jesus together with you. Thank you so much. Uh, while we were worshiping, I felt the Lord say to me that this scripture for you, um, as calves get released from the stall, uh, you know that one of, they will, they will, they will kick about and just be so happy and free. And I, I, I thought if I gave that word in Singapore, they wouldn't know what I mean. But you have calves here. And uh, when I was young, I grew up on a small farm. And one day the helper didn't arrive. He was sick and he didn't open the stall. And by about midday, my mom said to me, there's no calves in the field. And the cows are all locked up. Won't I go and open the door? Well, I mean, I didn't, I just unbolted and they just whacked the door open, just about ran me over uh, and just kicked and jumped and were just so, so incredibly happy to be free. And I felt like God saying that season is going to come upon you. What you have already had, you've been a little bit locked up, even though it's been incredibly wonderful. <laughs> but what you're going to have is you're going to have that just breaking loose of the life and the liberty of God, and you're going to feel such a liberty to, f to just enjoy all that God has for you and all that you've dreamed of and hoped for and prayed for, because when that door, when the bolt opened, you're going to just push out like a dam breaking and, and take everything God's got for you. So, yes, bless you. So I'm going to be um, looking at uh, actually a very favorite passage of mine, but I don't often preach it. Um, because otherwise I'd preach it every week. Um, and I did preach in our church through this passage some years ago, and I, took, I, I, I got up to preach just one Sunday, and I think I finished um, about four or five months later. So I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do this morning. <laughs> yeah, because it, it, it's just a wonderful passage. And I wasn't going to preach this. I had another message to preach, and I just felt God leading me back to this again and again for you this morning. So you didn't get my favorite message, you got my favorite passage. <laughs> so it's 1 Samuel chapter 30, and uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful passage coming to the end of the book of Samuel before we go into 2 Samuel, where David becomes king and he gets anointed as king. This is at the end of him not being king. And it's a passage that I, a message that I've entitled "Kingdom Culture for Victory." So what we see in this passage is that there is a culture that is developed in David, and it's a culture that is necessary for the victory that's coming. And so there's there's a few things that happen in the reading of this passage that we kind of know what the end's going to be. And and sometimes you 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 watch a movie. And they start with the end, or you read a book and they start with the end, you know, the, especially mystery stories. You'll get like someone is murdered, Agatha Christie, you know, and they're dead. And then you go wind back and because now you know what's going to happen, but it doesn't ruin the mystery. It, it actually enhances it because now you're looking all the time to see what led to this point. And if churches fail or succeed, we do the same thing. If football clubs fail or succeed, we do the same thing. <laughs> We wind back to see what led to this point so that we can learn some lessons. If businesses fail or succeed, we do the same thing. Uh, Jim Collins wrote a wonderful book called How the Mighty Fall, based on 
the life of Saul falling uh, and looking at why businesses fail. And it's very insightful and very um, uh, helpful to know why, why do things work or not work. Now, we know there is the grace of God, absolutely, but we can open ourselves to the grace of God or we can actually just become bitter and lose the grace of God, as Hebrews 12 says. So there's always that test. And for David, this is the final test for him. And so I want to just read two verses and then explain a little bit of the background. And then we see um, how much we can dig in this morning. I won't take three or four months. But I did say to Russ, I might overflow into the second service. If I finish this one, then we'll do something separate in the second service. If I don't finish, we'll just overflow. All right. But you know what the end is, okay? Because I'm going to read you the end. And so in, in 1 Samuel chapter 30 and verse 6, it says, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit. But because of his sons and daughters, because, because of his sons and daughters, because they'd all lost their sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Or the one version says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Which one did you put up there? Strength, okay. This, the, uh, okay, King James, New King James, yeah. I think the old King James said encouraged himself. Same, same kind of thing. David, David drew that life and strength. He, he cloaked himself in courage. He, he, he overcame the fear of dying because they're about to stone him. And he went to God and got strength. He got uh, fortified is the kind of uh, Hebrew word that's used. He fortified himself. He, he became a fortress because he had been with God. He became someone who now was ready for battle and ready to stand in the battle because he had been with God. Uh, he wasn't just sort of like, let, let me, God, take me through this and preserve my life. No, he became a warrior. And David was a warrior, and much of his life was shaped to be a warrior. And if we look at these seven habits of David, you could call them, for success, you see that we need to be warriors. God has called us to be warriors. When David stopped being a warrior, do you remember? He fell with Bathsheba. <laughs> and uh, I know that every Christian who's in a war says, God, just give me the time of peace. And uh, give me that time where we can just rest. And it's enough. But we are in God's plan to take back the planet and to bring back the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated and said the kingdom of God is now breaking in and we're going to be at war until the king comes again. So yes, we get seasons of rest, which is wonderful, which is what the Sabbath is all about. This is practicing rest so that we know what it looks like. But we go out back from this place of rest back into the battle because we are at, in war. And if we stop being warriors, actually we're going to become those people who worry too much and then get distracted and then are open to all sorts of problems and issues. So that's, that's the first scripture. The second scripture is um, 1 Samuel 30 and verse 18. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they'd taken. David brought everything back. So you could entitle this message to take back what the devil has stolen. And there was that wonderful song some years ago of we going down to the enemy's camp to take back what the devil has stolen. And that's what this is all about. And that's why I love this message. It's a kingdom message. It's a message about preparing the church to take back what the devil stole. And that's what happened in David's life. And God was preparing David to not only get back his wives and the plunder, 
but to get back everything that had been stolen from Israel, to get back everything. So our lives and our church life is there for a greater kingdom purpose. And it always works like that. And what we go through, we learn some things and then we help others to learn some things and then together we do those things and then together we begin to help the body of Christ and join with them to take back what the devil's stolen because he wants to take our inheritance. He's quite determined. That's the one thing he wants. What God has promised to us, he wants that. He's very jealous of what we have been given and promised and uh, we've got to take it back because he's taken so much from us and I could just think of so many things that he's taken from us and I may speak about them a little more um, after lunch or if, depending when I get there. But one of the things we've got to take back is Jesus as the cornerstone. <laughs> because I love you, the fact that you're so Jesus-focused in, in your worship. And I, when we were away this week, I had this vision while we were worshiping. And uh, the, I was with a few people and we we're shooting cannonballs at these buildings to knock them down. Buildings that were not right and needed to be knocked down. And we're shooting these cannonballs and knocking these buildings down. And then this messenger comes up to us and says, you're doing this all wrong. And he puts us into the cannon as human cannonballs and shoots us over. And like, you know, this is like very exciting. And then the messenger comes in and he says, now these buildings, there's a problem with them. And the problem is in the foundations. And he says, dig it up and see what the cornerstone is and you'll know what the problem is. So we dig up the foundations and to find the cornerstone, but it's not there. It's gone. There's no cornerstone. And then he says, that's the problem. The cornerstone was Jesus. And these banking institutions and these universities and these schools and these businesses and these churches used to have Christ as the cornerstone. That's what they built on and that's what made them successful. But they've forgotten and they've taken him out. And he says, your job is to put them, Jesus back as the cornerstone. And when Jesus comes back as the cornerstone into the society where we live, unashamedly, when we build upon Jesus, the one who laid his life down for us so that the kingdom can come, then these things that are looking so like they need to be torn down will actually begin to flourish and begin to have life again and begin to have color again, not just be gray buildings to be pulled down with cannonballs. And he said, we're fighting the war the wrong way. We're looking at all the things we can see that are so obvious, trying to destroy it and pull it down. We're getting into all the wrong fights. He said, just put Jesus back in as the cornerstone and we're going to win this battle. So it was wonderful to be able to worship with you. And that's one thing we have to take back. So this story of David, if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 27, it says there, but David thought to himself, one of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. This is where the problem began. Where David thought to himself, the best thing I can do. <laughs> it's so bad, isn't it? When you get to the point of desperation. David has been on the run, as you can probably remember, from King Saul for about seven years. He became anointed as king when he was 30. He became the, uh, a king of he in Hebron. Later on, seven years later, he became anointed as king of all of Israel. When he was 37 and a half, it says. But sometime when he was a young teenager, we're not quite sure when, Samuel, the prophet, anointed him as king. So again, we know the story. We know that he's anointed as king, he's going to become the king. As long as he sticks with God, he's going to become the king. That's guaranteed by the anointing on his life. Many people, that happens. You get a prophetic word. A young girl got a prophetic word. 
And you think, oh, there's going to be no problems because God's with me. It's like, no. <laughs> but the anointing of God will help you to become a warrior and to break through those problems. There are going to be problems, but there is a battle to fight. And every battle brings a, a wonderful victory that helps us to live, not with just what's ordinary, but what is heavenly. And that's what God wants. And so he gets anointed to be king. But here he gets to the point where he's been running for about seven years from King Saul. And King Saul is jealous of him. King Saul has, has almost twice actually had the opportunity to kill him. And God supernaturally just gets the Philistine army to come and other things happen. And David manages to escape. Twice he's actually in the place to kill Saul. And he has Saul, you know, sleeping. And he could actually take him out. But he doesn't. Because he knows actually he doesn't want to short-circuit the plan of God for his life. He doesn't want to be a human being walking in the anointing that God never gave in God's timing. <laughs> and so many times we can do that, thinking God's called us, we have a sense of entitlement to take, and we've got to wait for God to bless. And David just doesn't do that. So his heart's getting tested to become this greatest king of Israel and to become a king that's like a picture of a type, a metaphor for Jesus, which is incredible, isn't it? A man after my own heart, God says in Acts 13. A man who will do anything I ask him to do and who will serve the purpose of God for his generation. But at this point in David's life, he gets tired. He gets weary. He doesn't know that about to happen, just over the corner, as you turn four pages, he's going to be anointed king. And Saul will be dead. He, he doesn't know that. And so he gets to the point of saying, the best thing I can do. Wow, I've been at that place before. Just thinking this war is just going on for too long. And maybe I'm missing God. Maybe I'm not hearing God. Maybe God's been speaking and I've not been listening. You know, I'm like Abraham. Uh, maybe we should just go and create an Ishmael. Because we can. And, you know, maybe that's what God wanted us to do. <laughs> Instead of waiting for that supernatural son that God will give as Abraham had to learn. And he's the father of faith, and we've got to learn, that's what we, how we've got to work. But man, it can be so confusing, because there are other times where God just says, walk in your, whatever you choose, take. But there are times in the battle where we've got to know God's got to win this victory. By the power of his spirit, not by what we can do. And it's a great tension living in this place of not being lazy, not just flaking out and saying, it's up to God. But knowing that there's something we have to do, but we have to expect him to come break through. And so David's at that point, and he, he, he just goes and joins the Philistine army. He joins the enemies of Israel. And as he starts to march with them, it says here in chapter 28, Saul then gets, gets uh, desperate. He's not hearing God, and so he goes to the witch of Endor. Remember? And then they call up the prophet Samuel. And then verse 19 of chapter 28. The Lord will deliver both Israel, Samuel says to Saul. The Lord will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. So we the reader know something that David doesn't know. So there are lessons we can learn that he was learning. But we can learn them much quicker because we see what's happening. So what's happening now is David is being tested. Because he's decided to go his own way. Saul, we know, is going to be dead by tomorrow with his sons. So then David will inherit this kingdom. He's the son-in-law of Saul. He will be the next in line. And he's the anointed, God's choice, but also it's the people's uh, king as well. And so he will be the one to be crowned king. But 
He doesn't know that. And so what happens then is the Philistines in chapter 29, they become a bit suspicious of David and they say, this guy actually, he rode with Saul. He's one of Saul's men. What's he, they are riding now to actually do battle with Saul. And they say, this guy's going to turn on us. He's going to be a traitor. So let's kick him out. And he's like, man, if anyone wants to go and fight Saul, it's me. And they're like, no, 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 we don't trust you. You must go home. You see, God was rescuing David from being on the side of the Philistines when they killed Saul. And if that had happened, David couldn't then say, I'm the next king. Because the Philistines would have ruled. And he would have gone into a humanistic way of ruling. And God would have lost the king he's been preparing for these seven years on the run, in the cave, singing these songs, worshipping God in an incredible way. Songs for Israel, songs for us that we still sing today. Half of the book of Psalms we know are written by David. The greatest songwriter ever. Forget about, you know, the Beatles, Bob Dylan, whoever. <laughs> you don't know those people. And I know you're probably the generation who do. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, Beethoven, you know, whoever. <laughs> this is the greatest songwriter ever. I am so sad that we don't have recordings of his songs to know how. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> I would love that. I would love to see. Oh, man, did it. On, yeah, anyway, all right. <laughs> we know what he said, and we know his heart, and we know what he was crying out to God for, this man. And as much of what he's written was in that place of despair, in that place of being persecuted. You know, how long, O oh Lord? How long, Lord? Psalm 13. You know, just when is God going to break through? I'm sure, I mean, I know that song. I've sung that song for a whole year, every morning of my life. How long, Lord? How long? How long? How long? And then you just wonder, where is God? Is he there? David must have been at that point. And then comes chapter 30. You know, you have to know what's happening before you read chapter 30. So then what happens in chapter 30 is David goes back. And in verse 1, it says, David and his men reached Ziglag, which was their village where they were living, on the third day, which is very important. Now, the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziglag. They had attacked Ziglag and burned it, and had taken captive the woman and everyone else in it, both young and old, they killed none of them, but carried them off as they were on their way. When David and his men reached Ziglag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Anoim and Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters, but David found strength in the Lord, his God. So the first thing I see here of, this, of David is in this test. So this is the final test, we now know. And this final test is kind of the accumulation of all of God, what God has been doing. This is now, you know, when you get to that end point of doing that final deal. <laughs> Everything you've learned and all that, now this is the day. David doesn't know. He thinks this is the bitter end. His men believe absolutely certainly this is the bitter end. But we, the reader, know next page and he's going to be king if he passes this one. And so the first thing about David that I see as a characteristic of his life, as something that was a habit, a successful habit, and these habits are, are part of his character, part of who he was, but they also are actually what we need to take back from the devil. They're the same thing. It's very interesting. He, he got back his wife and his children. 
and the plunder, but actually the church needs to take back what David was learning here, these same seven things. And so the first thing I see from David, he's a man of passion. He's a man, he wept. You know, I don't know about you in Tassie, but in South Africa, men don't like to, to weep if things go wrong. It's just like, be stoic, just grit your teeth, bear it, don't show much emotion. He wept and he was bitter and he was what? He wept aloud. Well, I mean, you know. And then he was greatly distressed. Generally, you know, you don't want to weep aloud. If you're going to weep, go to the corner and just cry so that no one can see you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, but Terry is weeping aloud. It's just, he's because he's a man of passion. He's the man who danced in the street. Ripped his clothes off. He's the man who, who wore his heart, not on his sleeve, because he ripped his shirt off. He wore his heart on his chest. <laughs> I did that once in our church. You know, I got so excited about worship, and I thought, this is wonderful. I'm going to be like David, and I ripped my shirt off. I was much younger. It's like when I met Russ. And I, I, I was in the front, wearing my shirt around. You know, so excited. Oh, I've got it running, and you know, just give it all you've got, man. And there was a new couple with their family who had walked in and <laughs> Nola had to chase after them to say, come back, come back, he's not mad, he's not like that, really, come back. <laughs> they didn't believe her. <laughs> they did walk out, yes, they'd just gone, you know, like a madhouse. But can you imagine David, his, his wife despised him for doing it. But he was kind of like, it's not for me I'm doing this, it's because God chose me, he says. And I have a sense of overwhelming gratitude and I don't know how to do it enough. You know, it's not just, how do you show enough appreciation when you are just totally overwhelmed? You dance, you sing, you shout, you jump, you weep, you do, your emotions come out. He was a man of passion. He was a man after God's own heart. Many years ago, there was a movie called Life is Beautiful. Bernardo Ber. Bernini, the director, the Italian director. I don't know if you remember that movie. It was not as far back as Bob Dylan and the Beatles, but you know. And uh, yeah, and I, I saw the Oscars on, on TV. I had never seen the movie, and I just saw the Oscars. My kids called me and said, come look at this, come look at this. And they're giving out the Oscars. And Sophia Loren was reading out the movie of the year, director of the year, I think it was he got for director of the year. And she says, and the director of the year is Bernardo Benigni. And there is this little Italian man. He's a tiny little man. And he's seated right kind of halfway back here. And uh, he, he, he pops up like a rabbit. And he jumps on the chair, which I'm not going to do because you rent this building. If you owned it, I would. <laughs> and and, he, and he, he, he runs to the front, this little Bernardo Benigni. And then he hops up to the stage. I'm like, just... And he's like, oh, thank you, Sophia. Oh, I thank you. I'm so grateful. And I'm so happy today. And I, 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 I feel the love from all of you. And I want to jump and swim in the ocean of love. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I'd never seen the movie, never heard of the man. But I thought, I want to see that movie. If the director's that passionate, I want to see the movie. I want to know what does this guy got to say. And that's David. He's just like he could care less what people thought as long as God is approving. It's not like he didn't care. not like he had no manners. But as long as God is approving, he's going for it. 
man of great passion. We need to see passion back in the church. And God is restoring a lot of passion and has restored a lot of passion. And uh, some of us need to break loose a bit more. <laughs> you know, when I first came into the charismatic move and, you know, lifting their hands and brothers were hugging each other and, you know, it's kind of like a bit difficult. Because, you know, God is to be respected. You must stand respectfully and just sing loud. But then God broke all that down. Because <laughs> you want to be family. You want to be loving. You want to show something to the world what Jesus has given you. Not just talk about it. You want to live it. You want to embody the truth of Jesus. <laughs> and so if you're in that place, maybe you're visiting here this morning and you think these guys are mad. I won't pull my shirts off. Don't worry. <laughs> but try to let Jesus open up your heart to experience more. Because the more you give out, the more you'll get in. And uh, you're beautifully released into a life of caring and love and the wonder of people who are not trying to take you for a ride, but just want to be there next to you as you journey through this life. And passion does that for us because we're more excited about Jesus than anything else. And so we're not worried about reputation so much. I mean, we do care, but, you know, it's more the reputation of Jesus. And how can he rescue us from this life of sin? that the devil has lied us into to think that this world is going to get out of its problems without him. We've got to put the cornerstone back in. And then these roars and rumors of wars will start to find peace in the world in which we live. Because we've tried it in so many other ways for 2,000 years since Jesus. And every time we try another way, we have another French revolution or Russian revolution or another humanistic way of trying to bring peace and community. And it just doesn't work because it needs Jesus. And sometimes the church, too, needs to put Jesus back in. <laughs> because we've become a bit too cold. And people look outside and think they're having fun. And the church is so dull and boring and cold. <laughs> so we have to embody what God has given us and live like David. He's a man of great passion. But then we also see he was a man here of, of real power. Because he found his strength in the Lord. And um, it doesn't say how. You know, it just says he found his strength in the Lord. And, but we have to imagine how he did that. And just because of his life and because of him writing so many psalms, I can imagine that he, I can imagine that while well, the men wanted to stone him and he's all been weeping and been very distressed, I can imagine that David just kind of went a bit aside and got his harp and thought, I'm going to sing a song to the Lord. Because so many times that's what David did. And he found his strength in the Lord as he got into the presence of the living God. As he sang, and you know, his songs are not all worship. Someone said to me, you, know, you can't find theology in the book of Psalms. Oh, there is theology in the book of Psalms. <laughs> but there is also honesty. So not everything that's said is true of God, but it's certainly true of men. <laughs> and it's an honesty of coming to God saying, I'm broken, I'm desperate, these people want to kill me. You know, that's not like good theology. You wouldn't teach that in the Bible school first year, you know. <laughs> Maybe they should, yeah. <laughs> first lesson, first year, yeah. If you're passionate, they want to kill you. But I can imagine him being the singer of songs. That's how he spoke of himself at the end of his life. You know, David, the singer of songs, the Holy Spirit gave me these words, he says. And I can imagine him just drawing aside, not only in prayer, pleading, God help me, but in song, saying, God, inspire me. God, give me peace. God, come and let your presence be with me. Because he encouraged himself in the Lord. 
You know, David learned this art of songwriting in a very strange way because he was a shepherd and I don't think he wrote the Lord is my shepherd when he was a shepherd. I think he wrote that much later, but he was obviously reflecting on his shepherd life and how he was a shepherd of sheep and how he tended the sheep and looked after them and led them and so God does with us. Jesus is our shepherd. But he, 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 so he did have some songs from those lonely days, I believe. But where he really had his songwriting honed was when King Saul had the demon and they said, oh, there's this young boy, he's, a, he's skilled and he's good and he can play the harp and he can sing. And, and then he had to drive the demon out of Saul every day, bring peace into Saul's heart. But you know, you, we know that Saul had the javelin. And if David was not getting the songs to minister to Saul's heart, he would be dead. That's a real test, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, what are those programs, American Idol, or what's the one where they hit the buzzer and you're out? You know, it's like, this is David and Saul. It's like he comes in the morning with the new song and there's the king sitting with his javelin. and He's like, I better get the presence of God today because you're not dead David. And so then you write good songs. <laughs> Don't write songs you want to write. You write songs that are going to minister into that desperate, desperate heart. And David learned to do that, how to minister to someone else to bring release and freedom. And he did it under extreme circumstances that you wouldn't want to put any worship leader through. But God put him through that. And God got out of David, the greatest singer of songs and the greatest liberator through song that we, that we know. And then that's why I say when David encouraged himself in the Lord, I believe he went not to now King Saul, but now he's got to, all these men. He's got to find a way to bring the presence of God and encourage himself that he can go back to them. And I'm sure he didn't go back with a lecture. I'm sure he didn't, I'm sure he didn't go back and tick them off. I'm sure he just got that harp and he started to sing. And when he sang, the Lord came and they said, we can do this. No more wanting to stone you and kill you, but God is clearly with you. We can follow you. And David encouraged himself in the Lord's God. It was his habit, you see. It wasn't just something he had to, oh, how do you do this? <laughs> when things go wrong, how do you encourage people? God had led him and it was his habit. You know, um, in 2009, January the 15th, 2009, there was an aircraft that took off from LaGuardia Airport. LaGuardia, was it? Yeah, in New York City. No, it wanted to land at LaGuardia. And took off from LaGuardia, yes. Chester Sullenberg, Sully. You may have seen the movie, but we all knew the, the, the story, didn't we? And they hit a flock of Canadian geese as they were taking off, and they hadn't got quite high enough yet. And uh, he had the choice to try and get back, or to land and crash land in, the, in New York City, or to come down on the Hudson River. <laughs> and because... He had to make that decision very quickly, but he was a senior pilot who had made many decisions and been trained for many, many times with, through the simulator, simulated disasters, and he had trained many times over and over what to do when things go wrong. Both engines out, and actually just happens to be that he was a gliding instructor. <laughs> how many captains of jumbo jets uh, are gliding? Well, what is that? I'm not sure if it was jumbo, but... How many captains of an Airbus, I think it was, of, that, is, that, that are gliding instructors? And so he knew how to, because they weren't elevated enough to actually try to get to another airport. And so he just turned the plane and came in on the Hudson. And N.T. Wright uses that story and he says, you know, it's, it's a story that shows you in life, character is built up from habit. 
And the things we do from habit, the things we do every day, again and again, the things we get tested in every day, the things that become routine of goodness, <laughs> the good habits we have, when we hit crisis, we kick into the mode where that comes automatically. Where we don't have to think it through, what should I do now? It's like, I know what to do. I've killed the lion. I've killed the bear. Killed Goliath. Now I've got Saul. Now my men want to stone me. I know what to do. You can't just wait till the day of crisis as a believer in Jesus and say he'll be with me. He wants to develop character into our life. He wants to develop a certain discipline of spirituality into our lives. And you might read your Bible every day. You might pray every day and think, mm, not going anywhere. I'll talk about that just now. But you need to say, God, help me. Because those disciplines, they're not, they're, you don't have to. But when the crash happens, when the men around you want to stone you, there's something that comes out of you just naturally because you've put it in. And you can go through the valley of the shadow of death to that banquet table because you put in the disciplines. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He had built that in. Thirdly, we see here that David was a man of prayer. Verse 8. He goes and he inquires. Verse 7. David said to Abithar the priest, son of Amalek, bring me the ephod. Abithar brought it to him. And David inquired of the Lord. Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So he inquired. He was a man of prayer. Alec Mocha says that today is the Lord's intended preparation for tomorrow. <laughs> today is the Lord's intended preparation for tomorrow. It's wonderful, isn't it? And it is. That's what we learned from Chester Sullenberg, from Sully. That these habits we put in, and, and these things, are, as I said, are things that the church needs to take back. We need to take back passion. We need to take back encouragement and power. power empowering ourselves in the Lord. We need to take back prayer. So many churches don't have prayer meetings anymore. And there's just so many Christians don't pray anymore, except when they're in trouble. And we need to take it back as walking with Jesus, talking with Jesus, so that we know what he's thinking about. And that before the day of crisis, we have some sense of what's going to happen. Alec Mocha says that Jesus is always previous. It's interesting, isn't it? He's always there before we get there. Now, we have choices to make, and we also are part of the partnership. But he's kind of got the door ready for us before we get there. And it's incredibly wonderful. And so he's this man of prayer. And so I learned in the early days of the charismatic move from David Pawson, who was a wonderful Bible teacher. And I remember going just newly into the charismatic move, 1980, and going to some of his meetings, in the, uh, the Keswick meetings that they used to hold. And he said this. He said, if you want to learn to hear the voice of God, if you want to learn to hear the Holy Spirit, and I'm like, yes, I want to learn, because people around me are speaking in tongues, they're prophesying, they say, God said, they're saying, here's a scripture. I don't quite know how to do that. He said, this is how you do it. He said, you get a pen, you get a piece of paper or a notebook, you get your Bible. The three things people don't have much anymore, but that was a long time ago. You know, maybe you can get your notepad or whatever. But these are good things to have. I would rather have them than a notepad or an iPad, a pen, piece of paper, and a, and a Bible. And then he says, you go and you seriously ask him. Don't, don't ask him just to know. Ask him to do. And you say, Jesus, what do you want me to change in my life as I serve you? And he says, you'll hear him loud and clear. And then he gave a very good caution. 
and says, and it's not the thing you think it is. <laughs> That's you speaking. That's your guilty heart. <laughs> that you can deal with anyway, but it's something different to that. You'll hear his voice. And I, and I did that. And he said also, he said, do this. He said, and then ask him about your future. Ask him not only what do you, does he want to change in your, you to change in your life, but what does he want you to do with your life? And I did that in my life. And uh, he, he gave me, at the time, we were struggling to buy a house that we had got, and they were gonna, the bank was going to take it away, and the mortgage prices had gone up through the roof, and there were some legal hassles with it. And that's when I learned to pray, to say, God, you've got a future for me. Because God said to me, this house you've got, you're going to win that battle, and you're going to sell this house to release, be a release for ministry, which is exactly what happened to us 20 years later. And he said to me, and you're going to be released to a harbor city. And he gave me a picture of a harbor city, where I could see the other side of the harbor, all the ships in the harbor, and I was like up in this high view of looking over the harbor, and I could see the other side, the land on the other side, and all the ships. And that's where we ended up in Singapore, with the apartment we bought. When we walked through the doors of the apartment, we had searched and searched and searched. When we walked through the doors, I had to know, this is the place. God spoke to me of 25 years ago, when I learned to hear the voice of God with David Pawson. The first thing I learned to hear, first he told me what he wanted to change in my life. And I knew there were a few good things he wanted to change. But they weren't those things he spoke to me of. He said, Ian, I want you to spend more time with me. I thought, I can do that. So I started to do that. And then he gave me this vision of a harbor city. You're going to go to be released in ministry in a harbor city. We thought we were going to go to Cape Town, uh, you know, harbor city, Durban, harbor city. We were like our nation, you know. <laughs> and then we started to pray. And then he thought, maybe we're going to go to Hong Kong. We're ministering in Southeast Asia a lot. And then God settled on Singapore. And when, we walked through, when I walked through that door and saw that picture, I'm like, that's it. This is where God called us. And you know, I have felt like quitting the ministry in Singapore. Never felt like that in South Africa. I know pastors get up and preach. They feel like quitting every Monday. I have never felt like that. Honestly, Monday is a great day for me. But in Singapore, I just thought of quitting everything. I went to look at business courses. I was going to do an MBA and just go into business. I thought, that's it. This church sucks. <laughs> Ministry, you can keep it. I mean, people, they have got opinions about you. They talk about you. They gossip about you. They want to control your life. You know, you've got to wait for them to give God some money so you can get paid. You know, just go and get a job and get the boss to be happy with you. Work hard and get paid. It's a much easier life. But then God said, but I called you here. It's like, yes, it's true. <laughs> and get happy about it. <laughs> but then he took away the problems. It was amazing. He actually came and when I got my heart settled, he took away the problems. Because, you know, I was, in a, I was in a meeting where I wasn't leading. I was worshipping. I was in the UK. We went to an equip. And then we sang that song, uh, Lord, take me deeper where my faith is without borders. And I'm singing this and I'm like, Lord, that's what I prayed for when I went to Singapore. And now I'm complaining that I'm so deep I'm drowning. <laughs> Can you believe it? I thought, I prayed this prayer and you answered this prayer and now I'm just full of complaints and I'm hurting. And my faith is now, you know, I'm sinking. But I called out and said, Jesus, I'm drowning, help me. And my heart changed in that moment in worship. And everything was different from that day on. From two days of groaning and moaning, you can speak to my wife, she knows. My daughter even came to Nolan and said, Dad's very grumpy when he preaches. 
I was. I was just like terrible. God, you've got to have the presence of God. And I've got to hear the voice of God as you pray and as you read. And then you start to find there's an overflow of the life of God. Because that overflow won't happen unless you're putting it in. You read the book of Revelation and John's revelation. He really ever quotes the Old Testament there. You know, that's his Bible. But he references and echoes the Old Testament over and over. Almost every verse has some echo from some prophet, from Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah. It's amazing. So the overflow, you know, the, 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 the word to, for a prophet, one of the Hebrew words is naba. And naba is when things overflow. They bubble up and overflow out. Like bar naba, Barnabas, son of encouragement, but son of the prophet, literally. And so naba is when the word of God overflows out of you. But it can only overflow out of you, out of your inmost being, if you've put it in you. <laughs> and people want this download from heaven. I hear them say, oh, I need a download from heaven. I'm like, no, you've been reading all the wrong books. You, you, you put the word in first, and then you get an upload, an overflow. My cup overfloweth. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overfloweth. Sometimes heaven will speak to you like Saul on the Damascus Road. <laughs> And there is that sense, but you don't get to preach or prophesy out of a download from heaven. You don't come blank and say, God, what have you got? He, he, he puts all that's in you and it comes out of you. It, it bubbles up the life of God. It suddenly gets to connect when you're with the people of God. You say, oh, I get what's going on in God. You don't come in vacant, never read your Bible, never pray and think, God, speak to me. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's true. It's true. We, 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 we got more superstitious than being disciples of Jesus. Jesus went away to lonely places to pray, but that prayer sometimes can be, yeah, not too effective, but you're putting things in. It's effective when you meet and it comes bubbling out. That's the exciting part. That's the wonderful breakthrough part. So don't uh, ignore what, what God wants to do through you as you meet together. And then as you meet just with, your, with yourself and God, because what I found is I like to write poetry. And so I found when you write poetry or write songs, it's a different part of your brain that's working, you know. When, you, when you're very rational, you like line upon line. When you're trying to get things to rhyme and a rhythm to them and you're trying to get metaphor and picture, there's a surprise that comes, oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that. But it, it's the truth because it comes from here. It's the same kind of way that you prophesy. And so I want to encourage you to write poetry and to, to do what God's calling you to do. So these men of David... They went and took back what God had stolen. I what the devil had stolen. Thank you very much. <laughs> We'd hate you to go out of here and say we've got to take back what God's stolen. That would be awful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> they took back by God and by the goodness of God what the devil had stolen. And those are the 30 things that was David's habits in his life. There are, there are more. There are some exciting more ones. I don't want to Hype you up, please. You can listen to it on the when we if they record it later. Yeah, I'm not saying you have to come after lunch. It's not okay. I'm not trying to manipulate you. <laughs> Just that I said to 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 Russ, I said it's an it's I can do this in 40 minutes, but if I flesh it out, there's more life to it, and that's why I'm doing it in two sessions. As I said, in my church, we took four four months. So we've got to learn to take back, and we've got to learn to say, okay, what the devil stole. 
the things that God's putting into our life as habits, as characteristics, as a lifestyle of living. And there are also things that God is setting up for us, which is what happens in the very next verse. The things that God is previous, that he's, that he's open to us and he's making a way for us to move. When I knew God had called me, I said to Lord, the Lord, I'll, I'll get ready and I'll prepare sermons in my little notebook. I'd love to have this little notebook and just rough sermons. They don't have to be nicely polished. But they are messages that I can preach because I knew God had called me to preach. But no one had ever asked me. But I just spent time, every time I read the Bible, like I read 1 Samuel 30, I thought, oh, here's seven points. Don't just forget them. Write them in my notebook because maybe one day I'll get to preach them. And then, you know, when you do, you can, you can work on them and flesh them out and find examples. I want to encourage you to do that. God said that to me, called me to preach. And the first time I was asked to preach in the church that I was with, with Dudley Daniel, I preached in one or two other churches he had sent me, but he phoned me on a Sunday morning, like half past eight or so, and said, uh, we're going to be meeting just now, but can you please preach tonight at the evening service? And I said, yes, sure I can. And he said, are you sure? And I said, yes. I didn't tell him. I had a whole notebook full of sermons, and I, I didn't have to go and prepare. I just had to go and polish. And so I want to encourage you, whatever God asks you to do, is prepare. Be ready, because if God asks you, you can start to do it. Don't, ask, don't, don't wait till men open the door. When you are faithful with what God asks you to do, whether it's to be involved with the worship team, you go and learn an instrument, or you start writing songs, or you start putting preachers into your folder and uh, do that. I've got a young guy planted into Singapore some years ago. That's what he did. He's in our church. And he just he came and told me. Here's my folder. Mom showed me, actually. said, here's his folder of sermons he's got ready to preach. Never been asked to preach before. But he just did that. And now he's leading a church. You don't have to be leading a church. You could be in business. You could be a teacher. You could be doing something that's innovative and being an inventor. If God has asked you to do something, start to do it. Because when he opens the door, you must be ready. And so I like to tell preachers, you've got to have a sermon in your pocket. All right, because that's what I had. And when, when Dudley phoned me, I said, I can do it tonight. So if God asks you, put a sermon in your pocket because God is using people who are ready and prepared. And God's going to open your stable door and you're going to break loose. He's got things for you. Don't wait for that day. Say, when that happens, Lord, I'll become more committed. When that happens, I'll start reading my Bible. When that, because you won't have time. And the things you do now are going to prepare you for that which God has got for you. Can we stand and pray? Wonderful. So I did read you the end part where David did get everything back. You know that. It's all right. <laughs> Don't be thinking, oh, he did this. Yeah, he got it back. But there are some keys to how he got that back. And part of that is just the way we live, the habits we put in, the things that God trains us with. Don't despise those things. Don't become bitter, as Hebrews 12 says. Find grace that can produce a harvest of righteousness. So, Lord, thank you. You're so wonderful. Thank you for David's life. What an incredible man and an inspiration to us. A man after your own heart. A man who Jesus came just like. The line of Judah. The one who was like David, but yet even greater. And help us to learn these lessons and to take them to heart and let your Holy Spirit massage these truths into our hearts that we can become excited about the adventure that is ahead of us. That we can become kingdom agents as we prepare to put Jesus the cornerstone back into every area of life that we have a part of. And we give you thanks. And I just want to pray for this. Some people here, you also feel 
People around you want to stone you. There's a, there's a bitterness around you and you feel people are out to get you. Maybe you've been uh, betrayed. Maybe you've been lied about. I want to pray for you this morning that you find your courage in the Lord your God as David did. Maybe just put your hand up if that's you. Yeah, 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 wonderful. God, just like David, found his courage. There are people here this morning. Life can be so challenging and so difficult and people can be so brutal. But come Holy Spirit this morning. Come Holy Spirit. Come, come, come. Let the word of God bubble up in their hearts. Let the blessing of God rain down from heaven. And let them find courage today to go out and do what you're asking them to do. To get your presence, Lord. Not to fight the wrong battle, but to get your presence and power that they are encouraged and strengthened to inquire of you, what should I do? Which way should I go in order to fight this fight? Thank you, precious Lord Jesus. Amen.